All right, welcome to Political as Heck. We've got a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What's up, Todd? Uh, not too much, Corey. It's been an eventful week, and I want to cover it. So let's start. Last week, we reported that Cinderella candidate Celeste Malloy, she won the Republican convention to replace retiring rep Chris Stewart. Her victory took just about everyone by surprise, including us. Since then, there's been a vigorous debate about whether she was actually eligible to run for office as a Republican in Utah. And to explain the situation, I think it's probably easiest to walk through the statement released on Friday by Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson. Basically, she walks through the qualifications. First, the federal qualifications. What do you need to have in order to run for federal office? Well, it's actually governed by the U.S. Constitution. You need to be a U.S. citizen for at least seven years. You need to be at least 25 years old. You need to be an inhabitant of the state at the time of the election. What you don't need to be is registered. You don't need to be a member of a party. You don't need any record of voting. You don't even need to be an inhabitant of the state until voting day in November at the time of the election. So that's the federal qualifications which govern this. There's also some, some state which were law. by the founding fathers of our country, by the way. Not yeah, which we all believe in, right? I mean, I yeah. do. All right, so there is some state law, uh, 28-9-201. If seeking a registered political party's nomination as a candidate for elective office, uh, you must state, the candidate must state uh, the registered political party of which the individual is a member or that the individual is not a member of a registered political party. Now, I think there's been some serious uh, misunderstanding of this because it doesn't say registered voter for that party. The registered is, is a quali qualification for the political party, a registered political party. Okay. Also in 28-9-201, except as provided in subsection 2B, an individual may not file a declaration of candidacy for a registered political party of which the individual is not a member except to the extent that the registered political party permits otherwise in the registered political party's bylaws. Okay, so what we're saying here is this is kind of the governing uh, law when it comes to, all right, if you want to run as a member of a political or a registered political party, then you need to basically follow the bylaws of that party. So let's go to the party bylaws. These are Republic, Utah Republican Party bylaws. Article one, party membership is open to any resident of the state of Utah who registers to vote as a Republican and complies with the Utah Republican Party Constitution and bylaws, and membership may be further set forth in the Utah Republican Party bylaws. Okay, so there's not a requirement that a person needs to re-register if they have been bumped from the rolls for not voting. There's actually no requirement to vote. It just says that you register to, to vote as a Republican at some point with the Utah Republican Party. Um, so here, let me read a little bit from, from uh, Lieutenant Governor's letter. And I know a lot of people are not her fans and they're annoyed with what she said and everything, but I, think it's, I do think that it's worth thinking about. She says, questions have been raised about Ms. Malloy's eligibility for office based on her voter registration status. Earlier this year, her voter registration had been classified as, quote, removable due to in inactivity. In inactivity is not voting in two consecutive federal elections following an address change in 2019. So being classified as removable is an administrative function 
that has the effect of removing an eligible voter. So a removable individual must re-register before voting. Being a registered voter, though, is not a qualification for the Office of the U.S. House of Represent Representatives. When the matter was discovered upon a routine check by a member of my staff, Ms. Malloy was notified of her registration status as a courtesy. She was unaware that the administrative action had occurred and re-registered with the Iron County Clerk on June 15, 2023. This was not grounds for rejecting the candidate filing. Now, again, we're going back to the Constitution. That's the federal law. We're going back to the state law. We're going back to the bylaws of the Republican Party. Okay, voter registration documentation shows that prior to June 15, 2023, Ms. Malloy had registered as a Republican with the Washington County Clerk in February 2016. Since then, she has not changed party affiliation. As to questions about party membership caused by the lapse in her voting registration this year, there is a process by which a person could challenge a candidate's eligibility. Unless this occurs, and it has not, state law requires me to consider declarations of candidacy valid unless a written objection is filed, which is not going to happen because, um, because Rob Axon has already said, well, actually, she was already registered. So she's already, she's already complied with the bylaws. So she registered as a Republican at some point. And, you know, basically people are upset and I totally understand. And I'm not even saying I disagree. I understand and I don't necessarily disagree. People are upset that, that uh, Malloy, she lived uh, the past several years in Northern Virginia suburbs of DC as she worked on the staff of Congressman Stewart. She has not voted in Utah since 2018. Gotta stop you there. Cause she, she never registered to vote in Virginia. She never voted in Virginia. And that that misinformation is 100% false. Mm, good. So I got to stop you there because she, if she had voted in Virginia, she would be a Virginia resident. We'd be having a different conversation. She never voted. She never registered in Virginia. She never voted there. All right, you, you go ahead and jump in here. But the bottom line is, like, you know, to to call yourself a Republican is almost it's almost and honestly, if this were to go to court. Like, it's not going to win because essentially, like, what makes a Republican is basically you declare that you're a Republican. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. It's, 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 it's like, a, you know, a self-declaration. It's like saying you're born again, almost. Yeah, I, I love it when people get into the, to the party bylaws because I actually, I actually wrote some of these bylaws 20 years ago when I was vice chair. I know the bylaws inside and out. So since we're talking about bylaws, uh, if you go to section seven of the state party bylaws, it says it has convention rules. And it says, one, only Republican candidates who have properly filed for elected pu public office as required by law and meet the requirements of the Utah Republican Party bylaws shall be considered at the convention. Okay. So um, Deidre Henderson, as the state elections official has said, Malloy met the requirements uh, required by law, okay? And then you just showed the bylaw requirements. But more importantly, under section 11 of the state party's bylaws, it says the, the rules contained in the current edition of Robert's Rules of Order shall govern all meetings of the party, blah, 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 blah. And so here's the fun thing. The technical argument that the primarily Greg Hughes supporters are making against Celeste Malloy is that she didn't meet, she somehow broke the party rules. Well, what Robert's rules of order says, and this is incorporated in our bylaws, is if there's an objection, uh, a contest, or any sort of thing like that to be made against a candidate, it has to be raised during the convention. And if you allow the convention to proceed forward and then adjourn the convention and go home, which is what happened in Delta, Utah, eight days ago, I was there, then you've waived, you've waived any objection. 
And so what these what these people are saying is essentially, oh shoot, we sat on our hands. Um, I, I heard these allegations against Mala, uh, Celeste Malloy as soon as the convention was over. So I know I know for uh, I believe that the campaign manager for Greg Hughes had had this information at the convention. They chose not to use it. So at the convention, any delegate or candidate, for that matter, could have stood up and said, "Mr. Chair, I don't believe Ms. Malloy is qualified." Uh, to, you know, to, to, to participate in this convention, and they could have given their evidence, Celeste could have responded to it, they could have had a debate and a vote. And even if they voted to allow her to proceed, that probably would have, you know, hurt her enough that maybe the delegates would have changed their mind. I think that this is a parade of technicalities. I think it's uh, people who didn't, uh, who supported Greg Hughes or didn't support Celeste Roy at the convention, nitpicking, um, and I don't think there's a greater way to destroy the, the caucus convention system than for so-called party loyalists to be attacking the party nominee, uh, the, 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 the candidate that con the delegates chose, and trying to undermine her candidacy ostensibly to either get the party to forward a different name or someone the delegates didn't choose, or to help the signature gathering candidates. I, I've never seen anything like this in all in 25 years of my involvement in the entire Republican Party. And I'm really disappointed with people because Celeste is a wonderful person. She's definitely qualified. Um, there's no candidate better on public lands issues, which is what really what we need uh, from the state and Congress. Um, I think there's a void of that. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of sick about all of this. Yeah, and so to many of my friends who are like, Corey, why are you, why are you siding with the enemy here? I mean, the real truth is like, that's, this is the way I feel is, we are totally undermining ourselves when it comes to the convention. If our argument is, if what we're arguing is delegates didn't vet the candidate, that the party didn't vet the candidate enough, I mean, basically that's exactly what Count My Vote says about the entire convention system, that, that it's hijacked by a small group of, of people who have their own agendas and it doesn't represent the state. We're basically making that argument for them, and I think it's, it's frustrating for me to watch. Because I really think that I, I totally understand and share many of the concerns that are being raised, totally. Um, but she won. And so she gets to be the candidate. And if we don't get fully behind her as a party, then we're basically playing into the hands of those who would like to see the convention dispensed with completely. Yeah. And let me just say, j just to break down the 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 anti-Celeste Malloy argument there to say even though her last official act was registering as a Republican in 2016 and she never she never did anything to change that she registered as a Republican in Utah in 2016 and because there was some backroom decision made as a procedural anomaly in the Utah elections office because there was a backroom decision made to move her first to the um, to the inactive voter list and then to the removable list because of that. And, and none of that was ever notified to her or known to her before July, June 15th. Because of that act, somehow she has been stripped of her Republican Party affiliation and she's no longer Republican, even though she works every day for a Utah Republican congressman. That, that's the argument, is yeah. that even though she didn't know, we should now punish her because ostensibly. I mean, the thing she did wrong, I guess, was was not voting in the 2020 and 22, 22 elections. And what she said was, look, at I was living and working in Washington, D.C., living in Virginia. And so I didn't want people to say 
that I was, you know, and, and I don't think she had ever updated her, her 2016 filing had her Washington County address. And I think she had since established her Utah residency with her sister in Cedar City, and she'd never re-registered to vote in Cedar City. So technically, if she had voted, then people could, if she had voted in 2022, she could say, oh, she voted in Washington County and she, and she doesn't have that residence anymore. So now she's, you know, so that's exactly, I think, what she was trying to avoid. Um, so it's kind of a damned if you did, damned if you don't sort of argument. And I mean, even if you view that as a kind of a, a convenient excuse or whatever, I mean, she worked for a Republican congressman as a staffer and having, I guess, I'm colored by the fact that I did that for 10 years, too. And just the level of absurdity that we go through to say, like, she may not be Republican. <laughs> like, no, she is. She obviously yeah. is. And again, it's like really being a Republican is like, again, it's a it's a it's a self-declaration anyway. And yeah, OK, so you have to register. You did. It's not like she re-registered or someone registered her as Democrat in the in the interim. Like if you do no. it once and it doesn't change, like. I don't really, I personally don't really care if it hasn't been updated because you made that declaration already. Like, I don't have to redeclare that I'm Mormon every week, right? In order for you to believe me, you know, once and for all. Yeah. So again, I, th I think this is much ado about nothing. And um, I, I just want to know these anti Malloy delegates, where are they going to go once Rob Axon sends that letter on Monday or Wednesday? Are they going to vote for Becky Edwards now as a protest? Are they going to vote for Bruce Huff? I mean, Bruce Huff, bless his heart, I like Bruce. He got 14 votes at convention out of 790 delegates. Are you going to now say, well, let's rally around Bruce Huff because we don't, you know, because, and 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 I, I want to differentiate that with Celeste. I think a legitimate campaign issue against her would be to say, she didn't take whatever steps she needed to to vote in 2020 and 2022. So we don't think she's a, a good candidate. You know, she's not a you don't want to hold her up. I, I can see that argument against her, although I can see both sides. But that's not a reason to say the party should somehow undermine the delegates and not send her name. And again, if you're making this case against Malloy, all you're doing is helping Becky Edwards or Bruce, uh, Bruce Huff. And, and, I, and I don't understand that logic. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, a lot of the de debate on Facebook is about Becky Edwards winning. And I don't even actually think that that's a threat, but, but uh, Huff is, I mean, he's, he's, he's got millions of dollars that he can spend. And if I was a super PAC supporting him, I mean, his campaign's probably not going to do it, but if I was a super PAC supporting him, I would absolutely create a commercial and say, she didn't vote for the multiple, for multiple elections. She spent the past yeah. uh, eight years of her life in the, in the DC swamp. She's not one of us. Yeah. She thinks that she thinks that she's she's here to represent D.C. in Utah as opposed to Utah to D.C., you know, something like that. And they could do that. And I think Bruce will be up with commercials um, all, you know, most of the summer, if not all of the summer. But I think his commercials, I, I don't see him going negative. I'm not saying some pack won't go negative, but not only is Bruce Huff personally wealthy, um, he's been on the RNC twice um, and he has contacts all over the country. So I think you'll see. He can put in $3 million of his own money if he needs to, but he can probably raise $3 million as well. And so all of this undermining of Celeste Malloy is only, I think, helping Bruce Huff to ultimately win the nomination. And again, this is a guy that got 14 delegate votes, and that's who they're helping. Yeah. yeah and so is it is it because of spite? You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to say people's motivations, but are we angry enough that that Greg Hughes lost 
that that we're willing to sort of undermine our own party candidate? That's my question. It sure looks like spite from my seat. And um, again, I think that these people are hoping if they can convince Rob Axon not to send Celeste's name, that he will instead send Greg's name. There's no scenario where that happens. Greg did not win the convention. And so ostensibly, either he's going to send Celeste's name, which he will do, or he would send no name, which even helps Greg uh, <laughs> uh, even more, you know. Yeah. And, and all of this is probably helping Becky Edwards as well. So. Let's talk about some other news this week that was huge. I love the Supreme Court. I got to say, yeah. I love the Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court is pure fire this week. Issued a series of groundbreaking, uh, groundbreaking rulings. Several issues that we've all been waiting for. We're going to go through these three big ones. Affirmative action and the Biden loan forgiveness and the First Amendment rights. But let's start with affirmative action. The court held that race-based affirmative action programs and college admissions processes violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, meaning that colleges can no longer admit or deny admissions on the basis of race. It's pretty well documented that Asians, an Asian student must score much higher on an admissions test. And like 200 points higher on the SAT. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and it's pretty, I mean, it's large. It's, it's not trivial. I have to score that much higher than a Black student to gain admission at a top school. So I think the biggest winners are from this decision are obviously, uh, you know, Asian college applicants. I think schools, without question, will surely find other ways to achieve these goals. But the blatant discrimination against Asian and white students is no longer legal. So in his opinion, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment applies, quote, without regard to any difference of race, of color or of nationality. Eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Oh, that's so good. Adding that for the guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of color. Justice Thomas, his concurrence was an absolute tour de force, pure fire. He lays the smack on the dissent, which I'll talk about in a second, but I just think the country is so fortunate to have such a penetrating legal mind as his on the court. And uh, I think he's only three or four years away from being the longest serving justice of all time. And in fact, it's, it's really not fair that the conservative justices, I mean, to a person, they are extremely gifted. And we really can't say that about uh, more than, you know, one of only Kagan, probably among the liberal justices. But Justice Jackson, she authored, authored the dissent. It was a total word salad of why she thinks the policy is good, not why the Constitution says what it's uh, what she says that it says. She, quote, with uh, let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. The deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. Here's the thing. She's arguing the policy and you have the majority opinion and the Thomas con concurrence speaking to the law. And it's just overpowering. What do you think, Todd? So, first of all, I think that um, Clarence Thomas should have been allowed to write the majority opinion instead of John Roberts. I agree with you that his concurrence was probably stronger than the <clears throat> majority opinion. I think that um, Katanji Jackson Brown um, did not do herself any favors. Um, she basically wrote an essay uh, for her dissent that uh, could have been authored by Abram X. Kendi. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, I think it's also worth pointing out that 
Clarence Thomas is the grandson of a sharecrop farmer in the South. He grew up and his formative years were before the civil rights movement. Katanji Jackson Brown, I believe, is age 52. So she's four years younger than I am. She grew up after the civil rights movement. I mean, I mean to say that they're, they're both black Americans. I'm not trying to just, uh, you know, in any way, but I think Clarence Thomas you know, he 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 has the receipts of growing up in 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 what I you know a, a more racist America, I, I believe, where you know it, it was a situation where you know maybe he was turned away from bathrooms or uh, drinking fountains or things like that. Um, but in any event, I think it's it's fascinating that she, you know, she, this was you know kind of, I mean, President Biden said I'm going to appoint a black female, and then he appointed her, and this is a front of action. So this is kind of the case that. You know, she was almost appointed to, to to ride on, and she didn't seem to rise to the occasion because Clarence Thomas just took her descent, like you said, and he basically lit it on fire and and just you know just ran intellectual laps around all of the points that she tried to make. But back to the point, th this was a lawsuit, um, at least one of the two, because there were two lawsuits: one was University of North Carolina, and one was Harvard. And of course, Katanji Jackson Brown had to recuse herself from the Harvard. One because she's on the board of directors there, um, but at least the North Carolina one I think was brought by a group of Asian students who were the plaintiffs. And um, although I mean I, I'm just going to focus on the Asian students because um, basically the thinking was well most Asian students grow up in two parent families who encourage them to do their homework and really um, you know uh, promote them to be academically successful, whereas um, a lot of uh, African American students who you know, don't, don't grow up with with that, those same categories. And so we're going to kind of give them, uh, we're going to make Asian students score 170 or 200 points higher than the SAT to have the same consideration as a Black student. And it's, it's hard, I think, for anyone to argue that that's not blatant discrimination against Asians, uh, because it was. And, and in a similar sense, I think it worked against white students. But I'm not going to focus on them. I'm going to focus on the Asian Americans because they're the ones that brought the lawsuit. And um, I love the I love the decision that the 14th Amendment uh, it applies to everyone. It does. It's not, the 14th Amendment is not owned by black people. You don't get to discriminate against Asians or other uh, races uh, to, to 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 elevate um, to to elevate one race over another one. And so I think that is the right decision. I think that's the America that that, that we want to live in. And I love the fact that the Supreme Court expressly said if a college wants to say you know, write an essay about obstacles you've overcome and somebody, a black student wants to write about how they've had to overcome, you know, disadvantages or prejudices or implicit racism or outright racism, that that's an essay they can still submit and, and they can still be considered for college admission based on that. But to tell Asian kids, for you to be treated the same, you have to score way higher, that that is just uh, bald-faced racism. And I'm, and I'm glad the Supreme Court recognized it. Yeah. Well said. All right, let's hit the other one. The next one, the Biden loan forgiveness. In this case, the court ruled that the Secretary of Education did not have the power to waive student loans under the HEROES Act. Remember, Biden issued an executive order last year to forgive up to $20,000 for those uh, with stu federal student loans. Roberts held that the statutory grant of authority to the Secretary of Education to waive or modify loan terms could not be extended into infinity to forgive the entire loan and that a debt cancellation of this scale required clear congressional authorization and fell under the major questions doctrine, which I couldn't be more in love with the major questions doctrine I've talked about on this podcast before. But in other words, uh, 
President Biden had no authority whatsoever to forgive loans. He said so himself multiple times, Todd. Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi said, said so. <laughs> yeah, Robert cited Speaker Pelosi saying Biden did not have the authority. Nobody thought they had authority until 15 minutes ago. And Kagan's dissent, again, I do respect her, but her dissent was an exercise in pure motivated reasoning. Her only true legal hopes, I mean, were hung on the question of standing, which, you know, we'll spare everyone that conversation here. But as to the merits, though, she basically just argues that in an emergency, the president should be able to do whatever the hell he wants. I guarantee she would not feel the same way if it was Trump who would use the HEROES Act, you know, and emergency powers to accomplish any of his goals. Like, should he have, you know, given corporations a holiday for paying payroll taxes or tax, you know, like, no, Congress can do that. Sure. Can the president do that? Absolutely not. And, you know, the liberal justices just think their job is to impose their policy views on the country. And I am so glad. And I, God bless this Supreme Court that views its job as interpreting the Constitution and calling balls and strikes. Yeah, I I agree with you 100 percent. And I will just say, I think a couple of these cases, including the the, the Colorado website designer one, and you didn't mention it, but the postal worker one um, with the, you know, having Sundays off. I like all these decisions, but I think that standing was weak on some of these. And so uh, in other cases, the Supreme Court has kind of taken the technicality of standing. That's whether the plaintiffs really, if, whether there's an active case in controversy. For example, the North Carolina redistricting case, I'm not sure if that's on your list. Um, that that case will not have any, imp- that decision will not have any impact even in North Carolina, because the, the Supreme Court already redid all of that. And so it is interesting that this court, um, they're kind of taking a, a different approach to some of these standing arguments that um, that uh, the previous Supreme Courts have taken. But setting that aside, I love the decisions on the merits. And, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to repay my student loans, Corey. I didn't grow up in a wealthy sure. family. Yeah. I did it. And um, we all knew, I mean, Biden's administration knew this was going to get overturned because I think they knew it was unconstitutional. So as soon as the Supreme Court announced this decision, they said, wait, we've got another idea now how we can, you know, if people default on their student loans, we won't do anything for a year. So I expect you're going to see next session or in 2025, you're going to see another another decision because I think Biden's going to take a second shot at this. Yeah. I mean, I graduated from a top law school, which I'm proud of or whatever, but it was huge student loans, massive amounts of money. And and, you know, we were going to get our payday when I graduated. No, I mean, we had to pay back our loans. And we basically lived like starving students for the next several years to pay and them that off. College, and that lost degree probably helped you earn more money than you would have earned without Yeah, and it. I'm happy with it. It's worked yeah. out. but It's called an investment with a return on yeah. investment. And that's- We made the sacrifices yeah. to pay it back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to say that, you know, that people who didn't go to college should now- pay taxes to repay your student loans is just um, a ridiculous argument. But that's, if you break it down, that's basically what the Biden administration is saying without saying that. Oh, and I love, I love love the fact that people have been playing this clip from, um, oh, what's Biden's spokesman uh, named? Um, She's the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They've been playing this clip from uh, recently where she said, you know, if you buy a car, you're expected to make about the car payments. If you <laughs> buy a house, you're expected to make the mortgage payments. This is what she said in in response to the debt. Um, you know, to to, to debt this, ceiling raising the debt ceiling. Debt ceiling. Yeah. So people are saying that. So okay, so this applies to cars. It yeah. applies to houses. Now do student loans, and so um, <laughs> you can't have it both ways. So anyway, no, it's perfect. Perfect. 
And this one is just, I mean, the, the student loan thing is just such a blatantly illegal act and everyone knew it. Um, so that, that's one that just gets my goat. But the last one we'll talk about when we're, we're out of time, but um, the First Amendment right to refuse artistic services. So this one is a little bit more complicated and has a history. Basically, the court ruled that the state of Colorado cannot compel a website designer to create work that violates her values. And it comes in the wake of the Masterpiece Cake case from uh, a year or two ago. And these cases basically say that the government can't compel speech. In this case, it's, it's the art of creating the, 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 the artistic cake or the website design. These are works of art. And, and the court ruled that those do qualify as speech. I think even the liberal justices believed that it did qualify as speech. But what they argued was uh, that the court, you know, essentially is allowing businesses to discriminate against gay people. That's not what the court says at all. Justice Sotomayor's dissent was just really bad and just really dishonest here. So the court didn't say that 7-Eleven can choose not to serve a gay customer. That's not what they said at all. What they said was, if, if your work involves like the creation of art, then the First Amendment does apply because, because that, is, that is an expression of speech. And so what the court ruled is that artistic expression um, is speech and speech cannot be compelled. So in this case, like a cake designer or a web designer can't be compelled to design their art if it conflicts with their values. And so I think overall, I think the cases show that the Supreme Court, again, is just finally willing to restore the Constitution call balls and strikes, that sort of thing. They're not saying that, that if you have a McDonald's that you can refuse no. um, a, a lesbian couple. That's not what's happening here. What they're saying is if your work involves the expression of speech, of art, then you do have a First Amendment right to make some, some decisions about uh, what you get to say and the government can't compel you. So, Corey, what I like about this decision is if you are a professional campaigner, you are good at making commercials, political commercials, I can't, and let's say you're pro-life, I can't hire you and force you to make uh, pro-choice campaign commercials. So that's what I like about this decision. What I don't like about this decision was this was a made-up controversy. Um, this particular web designing business wasn't placed in a situation they they basically filed this lawsuit as i understand to say hypothetically if this happened could we say no one of the actual plaintiffs or petitioners of this case um is either a fictional person or is a person that didn't even know that they were a plaintiff there, there there's a lot of technical things about this case that i don't like and i i don't want the supreme court used uh like a hammer where people sit around and think up theoretical situations and then make the supreme court decide on them that's not what the Supreme Court's there for. So I would much rather they spend their time on um, uh, deciding actual conflicts that, that that really exist. And I'm not convinced that was the case in Colorado. But notwithstanding that, this is now the law. And I think it's the right law for the reasons you stated. Yeah, there's some, I think there's some errors to the thing with what you're saying. Um, and this is obviously a technique of the left is to create, create the case. All controversies. Take and, it to... And it's just uh, as right if the left does it as the right, but this yeah, time the jurisdiction right. shop the whole thing and then make yeah. it all the way. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I, I just, I'm not a fan of that personally. Yeah. All right. Good enough. We're way over time. That was good. This is good stuff. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Corey. Right. Happy 4th of July to everyone. Happy Independence Day. Thanks. Bye bye.